Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 22. Just a little bit of review what we looked at last week. Last week, you'll remember, was when Jacob and his whole entourage, if you will, his whole family and the whole clan and all his flocks and herds and whatnot, they all made it back to Bethel. They'd been gone for decades. They'd been out of the promised land. Now they're back to the land. God said, go back, and now they're back. And uh, so that was a momentous occasion. Bethel, you'll remember, was the place where Jacob originally had God appear to him in a vision. And then as he comes back, God appears to him again. There have been other times as well, but he's been gone a long time. So he's got a whole family now. He left with just basically the bare necessities, like a walking stick and, you know, uh, the clothes on his back, basically. Uh, he was fleeing from his brother, his you know, brother murderous thoughts and intentions. Uh, and so he, he leaves, he goes to a safe place, he goes to Padanaram over in Mesopotamia, he ends up meeting um, Rachel, he gets married to Leah, <laughs> Leah, the, not the one he wanted to marry, but uh, ends up marrying Rachel as well, and then there's also Bilhah and Zilpah thrown in the mix as well. So he's got four women, but uh, he's got to you know, keep that, juggle, <laughs> that juggling act going. And then uh, he ends up coming back and quite a few kids uh, following along with them. So last week he was in Bethel. God appeared to him. God blessed him. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. God reiterated the promise of the land and, and the descendants. And uh, you remember the first time he was in Bethel, he was enamored with the place. Wow, God's in this place. This place is awesome. And then the second time it was El Bethel. It was not so much the place as much as the personage of God meeting him. So he had matured in his faith as well. You also remember Deborah passed away. Deborah was his mom's maid, his mom's assistant, if you will. And, and so we took from that that because there's no record of his mom having passed away, that perhaps she passed away while he was gone. And you remember growing up, it, it was all about his mom. He and his mom were tight, you know, and his brother and his dad were the ones that were tight. And uh, so that created issues. So it looks like mom probably died while he was away. And then that last connection to his mom, Deborah, passed away as well. So resuming then where we kind of left off, verse 16. Somebody mind reading out of your own Bible? Verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, uh, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. What? what, what Ra- Rachel's pregnant? When did we find out Rachel's pregnant? This is news. This is big news. This is Jacob's lovely wife, Rachel. Let's talk about the family uh, tree. Let's talk about the score. You'll remember that we talked about this before. I'm going to put up here. We're going to make that Jacob, all right? Let's make Jacob. Uh, We'll make him a happy guy because God's changed his life, all right? Uh, Jacob, his favorite wife is Rachel, all right? So Jacob and Rachel. And then you remember I said the sister, Leah. You know. Careful how you draw her. <laughs> That's right. Something about Leah's appearance, we weren't sure. But, uh, so here, here's Jacob, here's Rachel, 
Here's Leah. Oh, but wait, Rachel came with a maid. You remember we talked about that. Her name is Bilha. Oh, and Leah came with a maid. Her name is Zilpa. All right? In fact, I should probably put letters up here. So there's Rachel. Here's Leah. Here's Bilha. Here's Zilpa. And this obviously is Jacob. And you remember when they were over in Padanaram that when you get married, you got to start having kids. All right? That's just expected. Uh, but Rachel wasn't having kids. Even though she's the most loved of, of the wives, she's not able to bear. And so what ends up happening? Leah's the one that starts having the kids. So Leah ended up having, you remember, there's Reuben, there's Simeon, there's Levi, there's Judah. All right, she ends up having four boys. She's got her own little rock group going on right there. All right, she has four boys. And Rachel, you remember, as, as the chapters transition from chapter 29 into chapter 30, chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel says to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Right? And you remember what Jacob said. He said, am I in the place of God that I could do that? That's not my job. I can't do that. I can't give you kids. And and so Rachel's just like, well, forget it. Take take Bilhah. Have kids through Bilhah and they'll be considered my kids. Okay? So Bilhah, she ends up having two boys as well. She ends up having Dan and Naphtali. And then Leah's going, well, wait a minute. We're bringing the maids into the mix now? <laughs> I didn't know we could do that. And so she brings in Zilpa. And Zilpa has two boys. So wait, i got to go through my head. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Gad, or Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All right? So Zilpa provides Gad and Asher to the family. Rachel's like, I'm the only one without kids here. But how many do we have so far? How many boys do we have? We have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Leah ends up having two more. So Leah ends up having, let's see, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, and Zebulun. All right? So Issachar and Zebulun. A lot of, lot of boys. And then she ends up having a girl, Dinah. We got a lot of people, but Rachel has none. And then finally, Rachel gets pregnant. Finally, Rachel is blessed by God, and Rachel's able to have a son, little baby Joseph. All right, I drew him shorter on purpose because mm-hmm. he's the baby of the family. He's even younger than his sister Dinah. All right, so now you've got twelve. You've got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah, and Joseph. So with Dinah, counting Dinah, you have twelve. You have eleven boys and one girl. And they left Padanaram, left Mesopotamia. They come back to the Promised Land. As they're coming back to the Promised Land, as we find out from this verse, she's pregnant again. Anybody remember what Joseph's name meant? They pick the names based on meaning. And Joseph means, may he add. So when Rachel has this boy, she's thankful but not content. And she says, may he add. May God add another boy to me. May I have another boy. And here she's pregnant. So in this whole mess of stuff that was going on, you remember the two passages that I brought your attention to? Chapter 30, verse 1, give me children or I die. And then later on when she has a boy, she says, may he add, names him Joseph, may he add another boy to me. All right, so she's pregnant. That's great. That's great news. They journeyed from Bethel when they built a little, when they went a little distance to go to Ephrath. Rachel labored in childbirth and she had hard labor. This is the first mention that we have here that she's pregnant for the second time. Uh, by the way, 
When it says hard labor, I'm not surprised. Here's why. Because they didn't have epidural, all right? They didn't have C-section. They didn't have people standing by ready to take care of any issues that might arise. You didn't have the sterile hospital room. All right, so when they went through hard labor, that was a rough way of life. I mean, I was about to say, women got it easy nowadays, but I'm not going to go there. I shouldn't go there. Um, Verse 17, somebody might read in verse 17. Let's just move on. (laughs) What does it say in verse 17? When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. Ooh, did you hear a virgin? Severe labor. Uh, I don't like the way this is sounding. Uh, Severe labor. And then there's this midwife. What's the midwife's name? We don't know. It doesn't say. She's not named. She's an unnamed person. Here's what I I like about her, though. She takes her job seriously, right? You're a midwife. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to help the woman that's in labor. You're supposed to assist in the giving of the birth. And even afterwards, it was expected back then that you would assist the new mom. If she's a new mom, you would help her out in figuring out the new mom stuff to figure out. Maybe how to breastfeed or how to change a diaper. Did they even have diapers? I don't know. But, you know, they would assist in the whole process. Here's this midwife, this no-name midwife, coaching and encouraging the mother, right? She's got encouraging words. What does she say? Do not fear. You will have this son. Also, we're getting word in this verse right here. She's going to have another son. Could have been a boy, could have been a girl. 50-50 chance. It's a boy. She can tell it's a boy. You're about to give birth to a boy. You're going to have this baby too. You're going to have this son as well. And then this boy that's going to be born, the midwife, giving this encouragement. By the way, she's got kind of a ministry of encouragement. I mean, that's part of what's involved in being a midwife. It sounds like you ought to have encouraging words, right? You probably wouldn't get very far being the midwife in a family where you say, hey, you know, knock it off. Do you really have to scream in pain? (laughs) Yes, I do. I have to scream in pain. Uh, We have ministries of encouragement. Did you know that? The Bible encourages uh, all of us to be encouragers. In fact, if you look at New Testament passages, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another daily. We're all supposed to be in this ministry of encouragement. All right, We don't have to be a midwife implementing a part of our job description. No, it's for all of us. If we're followers of God, children of God, we should be encouragers, encouraging one another. That's one of the beautiful things that I love about Tuesday. When we're in here in our studies, we can encourage one another. When one of us is down, God's got somebody that's there that's still up and can encourage us and lift us up. And then the next week we take turns and help somebody else out. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 18 says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I want to pause there a moment, though, because it specifies with these words. Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica and saying, Encourage one another with these words. What, what is he talking about? What are we sp- I mean, encouragement sounds like a pretty broad category, pretty general. You know, you can encourage people in a lot of different ways. But if you're looking for something specific, does the Bible have anything specific for me to utilize in encouraging one another? Paul says here, encourage one another with these words. The words are, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the cause of meet the Lord of the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's good news. If you're not sure what to draw from to encourage one another, that's great material right there. And it's that material that Paul says, you know what? If you're looking for something to encourage somebody else with, 
That's good encouragement. Encourage one another that the Lord is coming back, that we're looking forward to that day that we're going to meet him, and that we're going to, we're going to go from this state of living in this mortal body, and death is going to be put aside, and mortality is going to be put aside, and we're going to be with the Lord forever. That's good news. That's encouragement. Okay, let's get back to where we were, though. <laughs> Genesis thirty-five eighteen. Genesis thirty-five eighteen. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died. This is Rachel. In childbirth, she dies. When she said, give me children or I die. And when she said, may the Lord add. It's ironic and heartbreaking that in the longing of her heart for another son, it costs her her life. I wonder if, I wonder, you know, there's all kinds of speculations, but if she had been content with Joseph, what things would have been different? Would she have lived longer? Probably. Would that have had ramifications, though, down through time? Assuredly. Israel's first king came from Benjamin. Her son, this baby boy being born, is going to be named Benjamin. So it kind of puts you in a place where you go, well, is it God's will or not? God recognizes our choices. God recognizes our desires, but he also recognizes our choices, and he takes into account our choices, and he knows what we're going to choose before we choose it. It doesn't mean he takes away our free choice. We still have free choice. We can make those choices, but God, knowing in advance what we're going to choose, is able to accommodate and make his plan work out in accordance with the choices that we're going to make because he already knows what we're going to do. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of wild. That's kind of God. We have a hard time fathoming something like that, but for God, it's not a big deal. So she dies. Rachel, his beloved wife, dies. Who was Jacob's most cherished woman in his life while he was growing up? His mother. His mother was his most cherished woman in his life growing up in the Promised Land. And then he left the Promised Land. He went to Mesopotamia. He went to Padan Aram. Who has been the most cherished woman in his life since then? Rachel. It's this woman right here. And now she's passed away in the joyous occasion of giving birth to a son. And now she's gone. I don't know if you've lost somebody that you cherish. If you do, I'm guessing you could probably imagine what Jacob's feeling. If you've experienced that, you probably know what Jacob's going through. If you haven't been through that, if you can imagine losing the most cherished person in your life, then you could probably come somewhat close to imagining what Jacob is feeling right now at the loss of his cherished wife. And so it was as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, which the translators don't know for sure how to translate. Some of your Bibles might have a little footnote and give a suggestion. Some of them might say, son of sorrow, or son of my sorrow, or son of my misfortune. Uh, Some of them might say, son of my wickedness. My wickedness? Why why would you name her son, son of my wickedness? Uh, Some of the commentators say, for that possibility that she's remembering back when she stole the idols from her dad when they left. And she held those idols, secreted those idols as they fled from Laban. It was only recently, up close in time to this event, that Jacob called for everybody to let go of those idols, to bury those idols, just as they are arriving before Bethel. 
I don't know which of these translations is right, neither do the commentators. So son of my sorrow is oftentimes the one that's picked for being the most prominent one. Son of my sorrow, son of my wickedness or sin, or son of my misfortune. But his father called him Benjamin. How do you say Benjamin? Esther, how do you say Benjamin in, in Hebrew? Benjamin. Benjamin. Okay. I love hearing that. <laughs> so Benjamin, son of my right hand or son of fortune or son of goodness or son of good fortune or son of my strength or son of the south. In that day and age, the person who was at your right side or your right hand, they were considered in the place of favor. You'll notice when I wrote here on the board, when I drew the picture, I put Rachel at the right hand of Jacob. That was the place of favor. And so uh, dad renames the son, you know, from whatever name it was associated with it, whether it was son of my sorrow. You know, dad's not interested in raising this son of my sorrow as much as he wants him to be renamed son of my right hand or son of my... Uh, good fortune. Uh, by the way, your right hand was considered your arm of strength, and your right hand was considered or associated with good fortune. And also, uh, in the translation, son of south, in this day and age, in, in this worldview, east was your orientation. Here in North America, in our Western way of thinking, we have north as our orientation. You, you look at your map, and if it's got a little you know, compass rose on it, it's always oriented north. It tells you where north is. And from that, you can always figure out, oh, then I know where south is, and I know where east is, and I know where west is. But north is our orientation. Over there, that's not the case. It's east. East is your orientation, and if you're facing east, what way is your hand pointing? It's pointing to the right. It's pointing south. So son of my south would be the same, basically, as saying the son of my right hand. Okay, so um, just a little tidbit extra thrown in there. <laughs> All right. Right away, this child is born. We find out in this verse, there's two things that stand out about him. Number one, he's the first of the family born in the promised land. When Jacob married Rachel and, and Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah and, and had all these boys and Dinah the girl, uh, they were all born over there. And now they've come back to the promised land. This is the first of the family to be born in the promised land of that generation. So that's one thing that stands out about him. Number two, everybody else in the family so far has been named by the moms. He's the first one named by the dad. Mom gave him the original name and dad changed it. Dads can do that. Dads have a prerogative in our biblical account of being able to do that. I like what Matthew Henry says too. Uh, Matthew Henry is looking at this verse and when we read this verse, and so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, or son of my sorrow. Matthew Henry says this, Her dying lips called her newborn son Benoni, the son of my sorrow. And many a son proves to be the heaviness of her that bear him. Children are enough the sorrow of their mothers. They should, therefore, when they grow up, study to be their joy, and so if possible, to make them some amends. Was a paraphrase? You kids make your moms work too hard to raise you. You ought to, when you grow up, take care of your moms. <laughs> Show your moms love for all that you put them through. <laughs> all right, that's kind of the paraphrase of that. Verse 19. Somebody mind reading verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. Ephrath? That is Bethlehem. Excellent. Thank you. That is Bethlehem. So Rachel ends up getting buried somewhere near Bethlehem. Where exactly, we don't know. There's actually a place you could go visit that's supposed to be Rachel's tomb, but that place dates to the 4th century, and there's debate as to whether or not that's in the, in the right place. So uh, the commentators argue about this as well. Uh, suffice it to say, somewhere between where they came from and where they're going, all right, somewhere between Bethel and on the way to Ephrath or Bethlehem, she's buried, all right? It's interesting that's associated with Bethlehem because we have uh, another historical and significant figure born near Bethlehem. As she's died and buried, 
here, and Benjamin is born here. Can you think of anybody else in the Bible that might have been born near Bethlehem? I don't know. Um, oh, wait, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. He's born in Bethlehem. So it's kind of, I, I can't help but obviously tie it there, you know, put, put something in there for that. It also says regarding her being buried, it's interesting that she's not buried in Machpelah. Machpelah is the cave that Abraham bought for his bride, Sarah, when she died. And it's where a lot of the significant figures in this family are buried at that time. But she is not among them. She's not buried at that cave. Verse 20, 79, reading verse 20. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. To this day? This year? Can we go see it? No, it's not today. Back then, if you would set up a monument or a pillar, the idea was as you're traveling from place to place, maybe you're with your kids and they go, hey, what's the deal with that, Dad? Can you? Is there a story behind that one? Well, yeah, actually, that's where Rachel was buried. Let me tell you the story. So you had these monuments and they were, they were invitations for the parents to tell the children of the significant events associated with those places. All right. Uh, this is the fourth time that we have recorded that Jacob sets up a pillar. The first time was in Bethel, the first time that he met God. He set up a pillar. Remember, that was that stone pillow, and he's sleeping, and he's got this pillow made out of a stone, and then he wakes up the next morning, or after the vision, he's like, oh, that was amazing, and he takes his pillow and sets it up as a pillar. All right. The second time was when he was uh, fleeing Laban, he and, and his whole family, and they're just about to the promised land, and Laban catches up to them. And you remember the drama that unfolded in that scene where God says to Laban, don't touch the guy, you know, and he's like, I really want to hurt him, but God said not to, you know. And then what happens, they set up a pillar as a monument. So that was the second time. The third time was at Bethel when Jacob comes back with his family, his entourage. They set up a pillar, a memorial of sorts there. And so now this is the fourth time that he's set up a pillar. At verse 21, somebody might read that one. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Adair. Oh, good job. Okay. Migdal of Adair. Anybody have something different in their Bibles? Esther, what do you have? Tower of Adair. Tower of Adair. So Migdal is tower and Adair is flock. Okay. So there's probably in this location a tower. And if you're the keeper of the flock, you can climb up into the tower and keep a watch over your flock. And you can see if there's, you know, hostile enemy coming over to take your, your sheep or your, you know, your cattle. Or you can see if there's a wild animal coming. And it gives you more of a view. It gives you that overwatch ability. You're able to go up into this tower and, and do that. So it's probably there's a tower there for you to watch over your flock. And that is the reason for the place name. The place gets the name of the tower. So it might be saying, hey, uh, have you ever been to the Golden Gate Bridge? I don't need to say San Francisco. We all know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm describing uh, something significant about that place, and you associate the place with you know, that monument or that, that significant location. So here, the significant thing in that location is this tower. So uh, you could translate it Migdal. Is it, we're going to call the place Migdal, or we're going to call the place Tower of Adair. Um, so some of your Bibles will, will translate it into English, and some will leave it transliterated. And then uh, notice that it's switched to Israel here. Verse 21, he's now called Israel. You remember that God, two times we saw, said, your name is no longer going to be Jacob, it's going to be Israel. And we saw there's kind of a transition. Sometimes it went to Jacob and sometimes back to Israel. So here we've switched to Israel. It was just Jacob just a little bit ago. And then uh, verse 22, somebody might reading that one. We're kind of moving into an, a different scene here. When Israel dwelt in the land... And Reuben went and lay with Betha, her father's concubine. concubine. 
and Israel heard about it. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. And just before you read that, I know I looked around the room and I saw Esther's eyebrows go up when she was scouting the verse out to see what where we're going with this. And <laughs> yeah, so this is kind of an awkward situation, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, verse twenty-two, and it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. All right, let's look again at the drawing on the board and just remind ourselves who these players are. Uh, Reuben, Reuben is firstborn of this woman. Who's Bilhah? One of dad's wives. Reuben, kid, sleeping with Bilhah, concubine, maid. All right, we're introduced to her as a maid. Here she's called a concubine. She'll be called a maid again in uh, just a little uh, short distance from this as well. Reuben is sleeping with Bilhah, and dad finds out about it. Not good. This is not good. Not a good arrangement. We don't know that Reuben's married now. We, We have no indication that he is. Does that make it any better, though? It doesn't. It doesn't make it any better. By the time of Moses, it's codified that this relationship was punishable by death. This behavior right here. You don't sleep with your dad's wife. (laughs) All right? Even if it is a stepmom, you still don't sleep with her. All right? Not a good situation. So how could this happen? Well, let's speculate. One possibility. Bill has lonely. And she's getting older. And, you know, Jacob never really did show her affection she was just a tool to bear children it'd be nice to have some affection and and reuben not being married hormones you know he's probably wondering what's this all about and you know maybe i'll practice with my dad's wife my stepmom it's i i still can't really see that that's a good idea but for some reason they decide it is you remember with the dinah episode in the last chapter in the Dinah episode, when we were looking at the language that was over there, you'll remember in chapter 34, verse 2. In fact, turn to chapter 34, verse 2. Listen to the listen to the language over there. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, saw Dinah, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Right? It makes it pretty clear that she was not a willing participant. It makes it pretty clear that that was forced upon her. In this story you don't have that same language it doesn't sound like reuben forced himself on bilhah it sounds like maybe bilhah was a participant we're reading between the lines but we're borrowing from other places the context of other places so there is that possibility that bilhah's a participant in this this strange relationship all right, so I guess that's one possible scenario, that she's lonely, he's wanting to have sex, and they decide that this is what we need to do. Here's another possibility. And, and there's other places where this happens. Let me, let, me dis- let me start by describing a different story. David dies. King David. King David dies, and he's got a son who's going to be in charge. His son's name is Solomon. His mom's name is Bathsheba. Bathsheba is still alive and holds a a high place in Solomon's rule of the land. And this is very early on in the rule. And Solomon has an older brother, all right? Solomon has an older brother named Adonijah. And Adonijah had tried to take the kingdom for himself. When When dad was getting old, when David was getting old, it wasn't a smooth transition to who was going to be next in charge. 
And Adonijah took advantage of that. Adonijah says, you know what? Let's just get it over and done with. I should be in charge. And he tries, he attempts a coup. He attempts to take over. And it doesn't work. But he survives. Because he is the king's son. And David, you know, he's my son. Let's not kill him. So it doesn't succeed. Well, what ends up happening is, as Solomon's establishing himself in the kingdom, Adonijah approaches Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, and says, hey, can I ask a favor of you? And mom says, I don't know. It's not his mom, by the way. Adonijah, Bathsheba is not Adonijah's mom. Bathsheba says, what are we talking about? What are you looking for? He goes, I want Abishag for myself. Now i got to introduce Abishag into the story. When dad, when David was getting old and his body is cold, he's cold, he's about to die, he's near death, and he's cold all the time. And his advisors come up with a plan. Let's get him a beautiful virgin to keep him warm. I don't know what that looked like, <laughs> but I'm just saying that's what the story gives us. All right. So they find they find Abishag and they bring her to the king to keep him warm. All right. So he's shivering. Oh, it's nice to have your warm body next to me, you beautiful virgin. You know, <laughs> and and Abishag's job was just to keep the king warm. Well, now he's died. So what's Abishag going to do? So Adonijah's like, hey, I want Abishag for me. So Bathsheba doesn't see any harm in it. So she says, all right, I'll ask Solomon to grant that request for you. So she she says to Solomon, hey, uh, got a favor to ask of you. He's like, oh, love you, Mom. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she says, I want you to give Abishag to Adonijah. And he goes through the roof because he recognized what it was. See, Adonijah had already t- tried to take the kingdom once, and it didn't work. If Adonijah would have Abishag, if he was successful in this request, Solomon interpreted this request as a second attempt to take the kingdom, to take the authority. Because if you take the woman of the king for yourself, you've now made yourself, you put yourself in that person's place. So it's a symbolic act that says to everybody around, I'm the guy that's in charge now. And Solomon, like I said, threw the roof on this one and just comes unglued at his mom and says, you might as well ask me for the whole kingdom to give to him. Oh, and while we're at it, how about we just give all the stuff to the enemies? All right, the people that were part of the coup, how about we just invite them in and take over the place as well? And he goes, far be it from me if by the end of this day, that guy's not dead. And he is. By the end of the day, Adonijah is dead at Solomon's order. So Solomon recognized it for what it was. It was an attempt to take control of the land. It was an attempt to take control, to be in the place of the person who died. Now, coming back to this story. Reuben, firstborn of Leah, the wife that Jacob never wanted. Reuben, the firstborn, goes and sleeps with Bilhah. How does that fit in with maybe the story with Abishag and with Solomon and with David and Bathsheba and Adonijah? Here's how. You've seen in the drawing, Jacob and Rachel side by side. Rachel at Jacob's right hand. Rachel's now out of the picture. Who's going to fill the spot? Reuben knows that if he can sleep with Bilhah, it's going to cross her off the list. And there's better chance that my mom, Leah, can be the one to take that spot. There's a better chance that finally my mom will get what she deserves. 
she'll get to be in that place. And so it's probably his attempt to do the politics in the family and make this happen. Possibility. I don't know. Could be. <laughs> All right. Uh, by the way, is this going to go over well with Dad? No, it's not. But what does Dad do? You read this chapter and Dad does nothing. He notices. That's that's all we get from this chapter. And you think, Dad, are you going to do something or not? Jacob, are you going to do something about your Reuben or not? Because he doesn't in this chapter. Don't think, though, that it gets forgotten. Because we're going to find out at the end of Jacob's life that he disqualifies Reuben from the position of firstborn. From all that you would think would go along with firstborn, he's disqualified because of this act here. And Dad makes it clear from the language that it's because of this act here. So what are we seeing so far? Here's what we're seeing so far. Of the first four sons that were born, the first four sons that were born to Leah, there's Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. If this act disqualifies Reuben, who's next in line? Simeon. Simeon. Has Simeon done anything yet to disqualify himself? I, I hope not. Oh, there is something, isn't there? What did Simeon do? Shechem. Shechem. Simeon was one of the ringleaders that went in and annihilated the town, but he did it with another brother. Who was the other brother? Number three. <gasps> Levi. <laughs> Reuben, Simeon, Levi, all disqualified. Who's left? Yeah. Judah. Judah's the last of those four. So Reuben's been disqualified. Simeon, Levi. Judah's spotlight's on Judah now. I hope Judah doesn't make any mistakes. Mm-hmm. I'll leave the rest of that for later. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But he might. He might, yeah. He might. Don't give it away. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go ahead and close the prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, there's so much to be gleaned from your word, and so often we're confronted with a reflection of ourselves. We see these people making dumb choices. We see these people doing things and we just smack ourselves on the head and go, why? Why? And in fact, it's just a reflection of ourselves making dumb choices and asking ourselves, why? It's marvelous, Lord, that you can do anything with these people just as it's marvelous that you could do anything with us. We pray, God, that you would help us not to grieve you, not to grieve your spirit any more than we are destined to do, I guess. We pray, God, that you would be glorified. We pray that you be glorified in our lives this afternoon in the different places that we go off to to go to work. We pray that you be glorified in our lives tomorrow, the next day, and next week until we come back again. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you would increase and that we would decrease. We pray that it would be your will being done, not our will being done. We pray, God, that people would come to know you as they see that uh, Christians aren't perfect, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would help us just to say, I'm imperfect, but God loves me still. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. All right. You bet, Cindy.